following is a presentation of Prepared to Answer, a ministry devoted to seeing a new generation of Christians experience life transformation through a renewed mind by teaching them to think like Jesus. At the time of this broadcast, Bill C-6, an act to ban conversion therapy, awaits final vote in Canada's parliament. The stated purpose of the bill is to protect people from harmful or coercive practices to change a person's sexual orientation or gender identity. And of course, protecting people from coercion and harm is something we can all affirm as a worthy goal. The problem with Bill C-6, however, is how it defines conversion therapy. The wording is so vague that many fear it being used to deny even beneficial therapeutic practices. Of particular concern to Christians are the threats the bill poses to religious freedoms. With so much unclear language, Bill C-6 has the potential to make even affirming and expressing biblical beliefs about sex and gender unlawful. A threat, yet an opportunity. In its present form, Bill C-6 poses a real threat to our civic freedoms, but it also supplies us with a clear window into the worldview assumptions that have captured our culture. And this brings to mind something Paul said when discussing our battle to demolish spiritual strongholds. He says, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-6 We mustn't overlook the insight Bill C-6 gives us into the arguments and pretensions that a Satan is using to keep our culture in captivity. I think the better we can understand these spiritual deceptions, the better equipped we will be to avoid them ourselves and dismantle them as we participate in the public square and gospel proclamation. The Arguments and Pretensions of Bill C-6 The opening preamble of Bill C-6 states, Whereas conversion therapy causes harm to society because, among other things, it is based on and propagates myths and stereotypes, including the myth that a person's sexual orientation and gender identity can and ought to be changed. In using the word ought, Bill C-6 is expressing a moral imperative about the way things should be. The morality being smuggled into the bill, therefore, is that believing sexual orientation or gender identity ought to change is wrong. But moral imperatives, oughts, require a moral authority, a who says. And that's what makes this proposed inclusion into criminal law code so peculiar and concerning. What moral authority has determined that believing someone's sexual orientation or gender identity ought to change is wrong? No answer is given, of course. And that's because the statement rests on the unspoken authority of our culture's deeply held, yet extremely unstable assumptions of authenticity and self-creation. The Assumption of Authenticity The assumption of authenticity is reflected in mottos like live your truth and be true to yourself. It perfectly. Regarding her own sexual identity, Lovato declares, I'm done living other people's truths. I'm here to tell you that I'm going to live my truth, no matter what you think of it, because it feels right to me. Individually determined through emotion and intuition, authenticity is the new knowledge principle for identity. Our true self is found by looking within, and we know we found it when it feels right. And since verification is completely personal, our self-declared authentic identity is unquestionable. Of course, no one stops to consider what happens when my self-declared authentic identity calls your self-declared authentic identity into question. But that's because reason and logic don't factor into the assumption of authenticity. It's an irrational conviction. 
and that's why it's increasingly demanding assent by law rather than deserving it by nature. But to understand how such an irrational assumption has captured our culture, we must also understand its supporting assumption of self-creation. The assumption of self-creation. With his theory of natural selection, Charles Darwin declared, Everything in nature is the result of fixed laws. This supposedly gave mankind a way to retell his creation story without the Creator. The logical consequence and cultural impact of this idea is clearly stated by philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, who said, There is no human nature because there is no God to have a conception of it. Man is nothing else but that which he makes himself. With no God to give life meaning, our only choice is to create meaning ourselves. But this raises the question, how do we decide what that meaning will be? The prevailing cultural consensus is that, given its powerful influence, sexual experience and performance must be central to this self-creating process. Sociologist Charles Taylor refers to this as expressive individualism, that each of us finds our meaning by giving expression to our own feelings and desires. Unfortunately, we can't turn back the clock on this. The moral authority behind laws like Bill C-6 is based on these basic assumptions of authenticity and self-creation. They're unstated because ultimately they're religious in nature, but they do inform people's deeply held beliefs about who they really are and how they know it. The question is, how do we reach a generation captivated by the worldview of authenticity and self-creation? How do we respond? There is no easy answer to this. But there are a few principles we need to observe as we engage this generation with the gospel. Number one is that we don't use worldly tactics. Paul reminds us, we do not wage war as the world does. In our battle to demolish the spiritual strongholds of authenticity and self-creation, we mustn't resort to moral outrage or insults or ridicule. We can't resent unbelievers for thinking as they do. Remember, except for God's grace, you'd think the same way. Rather, Paul says, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone. Because the gospel is true, we don't need to anxiously quarrel about it. We can afford to be kind toward everyone because truth doesn't require belligerence or coercion for its defense. It simply requires declaration. It's God who does the work of convincing and convicting, which takes all the pressure off of us. Number two, we demolish ideas, not people. Keep in mind that while all sinners stand in willful rebellion against God, Paul also describes them as caught in the trap of the devil and captive to do his will, 2 Timothy 2, 25-26. This ought to evoke in us a sense of solidarity with and compassion for anyone, regardless of their ideological pre-commitments. This really goes back to the issue of our posture toward those in our world who espouse the virtues of authenticity and self-creation. With compassion, we should see them as captives to the hollow and deceptive philosophy of culture, whose author is Satan himself. This means we must lose the us-versus-them mentality that too often slips into Christian conversation. Those who oppose us are not our enemies. They are captives of our enemy. Number three, we are living witnesses of the truth. Cultural beliefs about authenticity and self-creation do not line up with reality. They are counterfeits to the true meaning God gives our lives. And like any counterfeit, they're most easily detected when compared to the genuine article. In 2 Corinthians 3 verse 3, Paul refers to the believers in Corinth as living letters, 
What he meant was that their lives bore witness to the gospel's transforming power. What this reminds us of is that not only does the gospel transform how we live, but how we live reflects the deeper spiritual realities of the gospel, the realities that we were created by our Heavenly Father for His glory, that the guilt of our sin has been eradicated by the gracious blood of Jesus, that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit who makes us holy, that we're adopted as God's children and heirs of His eternal kingdom, that God has placed us into an eternal family of brothers and sisters who make up His church, that God's presence and power sustain us for every trial, adversity, deprivation, or heartache, and that the glory of Jesus is our great and eternal reward, both in this life and the life to come. In a culture of counterfeit authenticity and self-creation, we must strive to live out the authentic realities of God's creation. May God help us to take seriously our call to live life in Christ so that our lives may reflect the truth of the gospel that we declare. Conclusion In Acts 17, when Paul visited Athens, he took time to observe the idols of the city. In seeing them, it says that Paul was greatly distressed. Bill C-6 isn't made of silver or gold, but it does reflect the idolatry of our culture's deeply held religious beliefs. And as such, we too should be distressed. However, Paul also took time to observe and look carefully at these idols in order to understand those who worship them. In so doing, he was able to reason with them, it says in Acts 17, when the time came to talk about Jesus. In the same way, our distress should prompt us to oppose the threats to civil liberties posed by Bill C-6 in its present form. But we should also not miss the chance to gain deeper insight into the hearts and minds of those around us and the deceptions that hold them captive and to pray for God's wisdom to reason well for the gospel in those God-appointed moments that we have to point people to Jesus. The preceding has been a part of the recording ministry of Prepared to Answer. For more resources to help you become more confident in living out and defending your faith in Jesus Christ, visit us at www.preparedtoanswer.org or on Facebook and Instagram at Prepared to Answer. Thanks for joining us, and may the Lord bless and keep you.